Uh, and we, when we have public events uh, like this, we always begin with a little safety uh, discussion. Uh, I hate having to do this, but we're living in an era where we kind of have to do that. Uh, I am your responsible safety officer. My job is to make sure everybody here is going to be safe during and after this event. And uh, if anything is to happen, I'm going to ask you to follow me. We're going to go right out through that door, and right next to it is the escape that goes down to the, down to the alleyway. If it, the problem's in the front, we're going to go over to the National Geographic Society. If the problem's in the back, we're going to go over across the street, and we'll meet in the park, and I'll see if I can get ice cream someplace. So <laughs> why don't you, but do follow me. I'm responsible, and I'm going to take care of you. Uh, it's a real pleasure, uh, it's an honor to welcome all of you today, and it's a, very much a pleasure to welcome the Foreign Minister of Iceland. Uh, I have to share with you a story now. The ambassador here, we're old school chums. We went to school together at SAIS. It was back in when Custer, I think, was in the Army, Garrett, it was a long time ago. And I can remember having this conversation. Gare lined up a lunch that we had with, uh, with the ambassador from Iceland, and we were talking, it was Iceland's mighty but small country, and said they had 186 countries they had diplomatic relations with. And I said, well, how in the world can you, a small country, have diplomatic ties with 186 countries? And the ambassador said, well, I am the ambassador to North and South America. <laughs> and I, Gary, I don't know how many countries you've got under your purview. Eight? So he's a powerful ambassador. This is a, he's a powerful ambassador. And we're, and he's also a very dear friend, and we're glad to have him here. And Foreign Minister, we're glad to have you here. You are ably represented in Washington, but it's very important for foreign ministers to come, because honestly, a big, complex country like America, we're kind of a, we can only focus on one thing at a time. And uh, it's very hard for us unless someone like you comes to get our attention. But you've done that, and I think we're going to spend the next hour with each other, hour and a half with each other, talking about a part of the world that we take for granted, we don't understand, and is very important to us. It always was. Uh, Iceland was always very important to us from a security standpoint for through the Cold War. And uh, sadly, some of that's coming back. We may talk a little bit about that today. Uh, I think we also will talk about the very important role that Iceland plays with, uh, with the Arctic Council, and I would like to welcome Admiral Bob Papp, who is our ambassador-designate to the Arctic Council, and he's doing great things getting us ready for a fairly important session that will take place uh, up in Anchorage here, I think, later in the summer. Uh, and America's focus is drawn north uh, for very good reasons. Some of them are security reasons, some of them are economic reasons, and we're going to explore all of that today. So I look forward very much to hearing what uh, Foreign Minister Svensson says and with us. I'm going to lead a bit of a discussion once he finishes his formal presentation. But could I ask you, with your applause, to please welcome the Foreign Minister from Iceland, Foreign Minister Svensson. Please join me. Well, hello, good to see you all here. Before I begin, I think you should all try to imagine where Iceland is on a world map, situated between east and, and west, totally inside the Arctic area, the Arctic circle, if you can say so. So Iceland has 
through history, been some kind of a forefront for North America. And also to, just to remind you that we found America 700 years before for Mr. Columbus, but we lost it again somehow. I don't know why. But that's the story of Icelanders. Well, Dr. Hamre, Admiral Papp, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, let me first thank the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, for organizing this statements forum and inviting me to reflect on Iceland, the Arctic region, and its political, strategic, and economic dynamics. For most people living below the high north, the idea of the Arctic has been of a cold, remote, dark place, accessible for only the few determined explorers, retraining an air of mystery and magic. However, it is not longer only the land of the Northern Lights, polar bears, and Santa Claus. It's also a place of economic development, oil drilling, tourism, entrepreneurship, and a place of renewed strategy strategic importance for Arctic and non-Arctic states alike. Although the climate is cold, the topic itself is somewhat hot. To us, the four million people that live in the Arctic, it is not a frontier, it's a home. Since I took office just over two years ago, I have barely had a meeting with colleagues, home or abroad, where the Arctic is not on the agenda. That shows truly how the Arctic is becoming an increasingly important region in global, regional, national, and also subnational context. My government has identified developments in the Arctic as a key priority in its foreign policy. Our ambition is to continue to build, up, build on and develop the principles that underpin the Arctic policy that was unanimously adopted in 2011 by the Icelandic Parliament, Althing. The Arctic is, in principle, a well-governed region with strong legal and international structures, institutional structures. Iceland's Arctic policy encompasses 12 wide-ranging uh, principles, including promoting and strengthening the Arctic Council as the most important forum on Arctic issues, the importance and respect of international law, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea being the most important one, in addition, science and knowledge is fundamental to policy and decision-making in the Arctic. Also, the policy states clearly that Iceland will adhere to principles of sustainability and protection of the environment, which is regarded as a seminal principle when discussing the future of economic development in the region. Developments in the Arctic include complex and urgent security challenges. Peaceful cooperation among the Arctic states must continue to be based on national rights, and obligations. Military activities should be focused on maintaining a peaceful cooperation. If that is to be realized, we have to prepare in advance and we have to prepare together. We must define where our strengths lie, where we can build on existing capabilities, where we have to add capacity and perhaps infrastructure in the future, but we also have to define and prepare against possible threats. The changes in the high north are driven by several interlinked factors. First and foremost by global warming, following by increased demand for energy and raw materials, potential for transarctic, for transarctic shipping and economic development in, in, and, uh, in infrastructure, tourism and services. Simultaneously, we see a growing number of countries and actors interesting in the Arctic. 
The key, the key driving force, however, is global warming. The melting of the ice cap is happening as much, at much faster rate than we anticipated. Even if it is only in recent years that the Arctic has been attracting uh, greater international attention, Iceland has participated in political discussion on the, f on the future of the region for decades. For example, in October 1987, an international conference was organized in Reykjavik on the possibilities of Arctic shipping. That same week, then General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, Mikhail Gorbachev, gave a historic speech in Murmansk when he emphasized the economic need for more cooperation and collaboration with other nations in Northern Europe. This set the tone for confidence building in a new era of international relations in the North. Looking back in history, the first major achievement, major achievement of Arctic cooperation was to build trust and cooperation among Arctic states in the aftermath of the Cold War, based on simple fact that we share the same environment and we share, this, we share the responsibility for the region. This led to establishment of various regional forums, most importantly, the Arctic Council in 1996. In the early days of the Arctic Council and its, and, and its predecessor, the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy, cooperation chiefly focused on environmental protection and science cooperation. Today, the Council has moved from being a policy shaping to policy making with two legally binding agreements in place, one on oil spill response and the other on search and rescue. Also increased economic activity, shipping, tourism, and resource development has led the council to take and expand roles and responsibilities, such as regarding business cooperation and civil and environmental security and protection demonstrated by two, the two agreements. But at the same time, the council has been able to adapt to this changing reality with a more open engagement with relevant international stakeholders, allowing them rightfully to contribute to our work. And at our last ministerial in Equalit in April, in April, the ministers discussed the positive contribution of the observers, and the ministers will receive recommendation on further collaboration with them at the next ministerial. The growing international significance of the council is demonstrated by the fact that it now includes 10 of the 11 largest economies as members or as observers. Six of the 15 largest oil producers and nine of the 20 largest fishing nations in the world, Iceland and the US among them, and China being the biggest fishing nation by far. This interest in the Arctic is not restricted to China. Asian economies, Japan, South Korea, and Singapore are also observers. They follow developments in the Arctic closely because they have strong economic interests with respect to shipping, logistics, and trade, apart from research and scientific work connected to universities and government agencies. Iceland and China concluded a free trade agreement in 2013, providing for preferential market access for imports of Iceland products into Chinese market. Together with Switzerland, we were the first European nations to conclude a certain agreement with China. And China has made such agreements with several countries in South and East Asia, as well as Central and South America, and with Australia and New Zealand. Ladies and gentlemen, when numbers and figures about the growth potential in the Arctic, of the Arctic, uh, we should take, with, take it with caution. There is little doubt that major possibilities exist. 
a close alignment with the principles of environmental protection and utilization of natural resources, while the application of the best available technology and best practices are prerequisite for sustainable development in the Arctic. Technology has made it possible to utilize previously inaccessible natural resources in a sustainable manner. A growing human economic activity increases regional and coastal marine transport. Caution needs to be exercised. The region, the region's sensitive environment and, and, and its vulnerability, vulnerable species and ecosystems need to be protected from the potential negative impact of this development. Sustainable utilization of marine resources must be ensured. Many of them, many of the region's communities, including Iceland, are to a large extent dependent on these resources, or these resources. This can only be accomplished through the close cooperation of all, of all of the Arctic coastal states. Let's not forget that for an island state like Iceland, that is entirely located within the Arctic, the region as a whole, and the sustainable and responsible de development is of fundamental significance. Therefore, making sure that we manage our natural resources for the benefit of future generations is a central theme in our policy. For example, warming of the oceans can lead to changes in the environment and migration of valuable feedstocks, perhaps out of the Icelandic economic zone. With retreating ice and warmer oceans in the, Ar in the Arctic, new areas might open for plankton production, which may lead to a new finding grounds for feedstocks and other marine Organisms, possibly resulting in a massive transfer of biomass in the ocean. At the same time, we see changes in ocean acidification that can have huge effect on the living marine environment in the oceans. We must also ensure that increased oil and gas production and other resource utilization in the region serve the interests of inhabitants and do not undermine the sustainable development of their communities. This includes emphasizing the utilization of renewable energy resources wherever possible. Here, Iceland is in a particular good position to lead by an example. Today, to, uh, close to 100% of our electricity and heating is derived from renewables, mainly hydro and geothermal. We have also been successful in exporting renewable energy knowledge and expertise, not least in geothermal, to eastern Africa, but also hydro closer to home, for example, to Greenland. Hydro, geothermal, wind, ocean or solar power will not solve all our problems, but those are becoming increasingly feasible and reliable energy sources. This ensures more diverse energy resources to meet the needs for investment and the development of local communities and economies in the Arctic. Therefore, as we carefully tread the path towards extraction of oil and gas in the Arctic, we need to continue to invest in renewable energy, technology and resources. And our common aim should be for the Arctic to be a sustainable region in the long term, but not a short-term source for explorable, exportable valuables. The 1996 Ottawa Declaration to establish the Arctic Council clearly states that sustainable development and environmental protection are at the heart of the Council's work. The eight Arctic states share a common responsibility in maintaining the Arctic as a region of peace, stability and cooperation. I believe the United States chairmanship theme for the next two years, One Arctic, Shared Opportunities, Challenges and Responsibilities, captures our common vision very well. 
Iceland is fully committed to continuing active and constructive participation in our joint work during the U.S. chairmanship. One of the U.S. themes is the focus on the ocean and the establishment of the Task Force of Arctic Marine Cooperation. Iceland will co-chair the, the task force together with Norway and the U.S. We welcome U.S. interest in continuing the work of the Arctic states in safeguarding environmental and civil security in the Arctic and, further, and furthering practical, practical international cooperation and regional search and rescue capability as well as oil spill response capacity and increasing the focus on renewable energy and telecommunications infrastructure. Special attention is given to climate change and as we move towards an international climate change agreement at the COP21 in Paris this year, it is important that we demonstrate leadership in addressing the causes of Arctic warming and work together to achieve effective and ambitious reductions of greenhouse gases. As an Arctic island state witnessing climate change and its consequences in the Arctic, we know the importance of taking concrete international actions. The newly established Arctic Economic Council will be a valuable partner in facilitating and fostering business opportunities to stimulate investment and employ employment opportunities. While advancing responsible economic development in the region, it is not yet open to participation by businesses from third countries, including observer states, but we are, we are of the opinion that it should be. That will bring benefits and promote and increase investments between the Arctic and other regions and, and countries. Ladies and gentlemen, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the pace of cooperation in the Arctic increased. Regional structures for cooperation were established and a number of issues that had not been on the agenda were put on the table. Chief among them perhaps nuclear safety and environmental issues. The regional cooperation initiatives that were created aimed at building confidence with Russia and promoting political dialogue and practical cooperation. The Barnes Euro-Arctic Council, the Council of the Baltic Sea States, the Northern Dimension to name but a few, emerged in addition to existing strong Nordic regional cooperation and the need to further develop co cooperation with the three Baltic states that had their independence restored after the Soviet Union broke up. In the European, Arctic and Northern Europe, you see regional cooperation at its best. Considerable time and money has been invested in these regional structures over the last 20 or 25 years. It is therefore particularly worrying to witness current developments in Ukraine. Russia's annexation, annexation of Crimea and its subsequent involvement in eastern Ukraine is unacceptable. And such a serious breach of international law that it, that it has gravely damaged our relations with Russia. I have visited Ukraine four times in the, last, in the past uh, 18 months, and I am convinced that ordinary Ukrainians want to see a real fight against corruption that remains rife in the country. They want democracy, rule of law, and improved human rights. This was the underlying reason for the protests on the Maiden Square. The old idea or doctrine that states should be within some other states, spare of influence, is outdated and old-fashioned, to say the least. Iceland has firmly condemned Russia's actions, and we participate in all EU-imposed sanctions. The challenge for Western states is to find ways to address the conduct of a neighboring country that does not hesitate to violate international law and damage relations with the West. Russia must realize 
that the annexation of Crimea is in, is a, is in blatant violation of international, and international law and has consequences. Consequences both for Russia's political standing internationally and for Russia's economic relations with key partners. The transatlantic unity is clear. Just a few years ago, when the European Union, the European Union decided to extend sanctions against Russia, and Iceland continues to support these efforts. Having attended the NATO Defence Ministerial Brussels last week, it is clear that the mood is gloomy. NATO tried very hard to make Russia as a partner, but it appears that the feeling is not mutual. What does it mean for transatlantic trans cooperation? I think it's clear that we need to maintain and expand the relations between the North American and the European NATO members. And as you, as you know, NATO member states have vastly different relations with Russia. Some are more vulnerable than others, especially when it comes to energy. And, but Europe has made considerable efforts to seek alternative ways and means to import oil and in particular gas from other sources, sources than Russia. And this is very important. I will, however, stress to anyone here in Washington that NATO continues to hold enormous political value. That includes the extensive military cooperation among allies and partners that produce invaluable results every single day. But it also includes the unfailing resolve of nations that stood the ultimate test during the Cold War. For Iceland, NATO is just as important as it was, as it has always been since 1941, 1949, when we were one of the 12 founding members. It is a security guarantee through the principle of collective defense. The Arctic states have to be committed to cooperation. Our differences should not damage existing cooperation, but at the same time, it will be very difficult to further develop the cooperation given the situation. Finally, I would like to talk about Iceland's security and defense, including our cooperation with the United States. Iceland has no military forces. With our defense guaranteed by our founding membership of NATO and the 1951 bilateral defense agreement with the United States. These linked security guarantees remain the two pillars on which Iceland's national security policy rests. And I also want to mention the ever-increasing cooperation between the Nordic countries on security and defense, cooperation that is both timely and highly relevant and covers a broad range of security issues. With the departures of US forces from Iceland in 2006, Iceland assumed responsibility for a number of critical defense-related tasks. This includes the cooperation the operation of the NATO Integrated Air Defense Radar System in Iceland, as well as facilities at Keflavik Airport. Those facilities are essential for the NATO air policing mission in Iceland, well as other alliance operations and in support of alliance traffic and maintaining situal awareness. For a country without armed forces, assuming the responsibility was a major challenge. I am, however, proud to say that the transition was a complete success without any operational interruption. The U.S.-Iceland defense relationship has matured and developed since the base closure. Our cooperation now increasingly takes in in into account emerging threats and non-military challenges. The government of Iceland is committed to strengthen these bilateral ties further based on mutual interests. Two areas are of particular importance in this respect. First, we will continue to reinforce our partnership 
through our existing robust strategic dialogue and strong defense cooperation. Our focus there is both on addressing current issues as well on strategic thinking regarding future challenges and opportunities. Current events show us that, the th that threats are increasingly unpredictable. We must, therefore, uh, we must therefore be more flexible in our planning and preparedness. Second, we will continue to work with the United States to ensure that the robust contingency plan in, are in place for the defense of Iceland and of sea lines and air corridors necessary in support of allied operations. The value of, of, of operation, operations and exercises in the Arctic region is once again becoming clear. They are a means of building greater situational awareness and multi-use operational capabilities as well as exercising collective defense contingencies. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, I have touched upon many issues related to the Arctic and Iceland. Our interests are in so many ways tied to the future development of the Arctic. Business development, environmental protection, and security of the region are of fundamental importance to my country. Strong relations with the US and other nations in the region and continued international cooperation is the best way to make sure that the development of the region brings benefits to all those that call the Arctic their home. And thank you for your attention. Please, Foreign Minister. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you've opened up a, a number of very important issues for us to dig into. Let me uh, ask very directly. Uh, you mentioned your uh, opposition to Russian military activity in Crimea, mm -hmm. Ukraine. A uh, lot of uh, countries are experiencing Russian military maneuvers close to them. What are you experiencing these days? Well, we, have, we are experiencing more of, of uh, let's say, activities from the Russian side. They are, they are uh, both, in, both in air and, and uh, uh, under the sea level, if I can put it in that, <laughs> that way. Um, what we have seen also, they are, they are uh, we seem to be practicing new routes around Iceland. Um, more activities uh, in the ocean is, is something that we are aware of. Um, but we have seen through years that, that uh, they, you know, have been doing some kind of this stuff before, even though after the Cold War. But uh, this is uh, in a, a new, um, We've never seen it as big as it, is, it has been today. Uh, they have not breaking, breaking, they are not breaking any laws. They are uh, outside of our, our uh, air, air zone. But uh, it is, of course, worrying that, that if they are trying to push us to, to the old-fashioned Cold War uh, situation, something that, that is worrying. Um, but in Iceland, um, we are aware of, we are aware of the situation in, in, in Europe in the eastern part of Europe, and the new uh, strategic, strategic, uh, let's say, uh, maneuvers that, that they are showing us in, in the, from Murmansk and, and uh, those places, is something that does, does worry us a lot. Is there a diplomatic exchange that accompanies this activity, or is it silence and just operations to uh, uh, in and near you? Uh, we definitely, uh, address this with, with uh, their embassy in Iceland uh, when they are, are, are doing this because they have not uh, 
let's say they are not being very polite, they are not uh, telling us at forehand that they are coming. But um, you know that is their style today at least, they are not, not doing that also in, in the Baltic Sea or, or near Norway. But uh, we have always had quite a good relations with Russia, mm. so we are very uh, honest and open and frank with them when, when we see there's a reason to do so. You mentioned that you and the Nordic, uh, your Nordic partners are working together on security matters. Is there a collective uh, effort on the part of all of you in trying to talk with Russia? You all have pretty good individual relations with Russia. Uh, no, we have not been, been uh, addressing this uh, together. But you are right, we have been uh, uh, establishing uh, a, a cooperation when it comes to security defense. That is a idea based on a uh, report that Jens Stoltenberg wrote some years ago. And we have been trying to implement uh, ideas that, that came from this report, and one of them is more of cooperation, so-called NordEFCO. But Russia is, for Iceland, uh, has always been a very important uh, uh, trade partner. It's our seventh biggest export country when it comes to, to Icelandic exports. So it's, it's, a, it's a rather sensitive issue to, to deal with in Iceland, of course, when you have so much at stake. But we cannot accept uh, one country uh, you know, is breaking international law and conventions without addressing it. And for an island like Iceland, that rests, you know, our, our independent rests on, on international law. You can say so. Uh, it's very important to take a, a stand against, uh, against the citizen. We had a, an earlier conversation uh, about uh, the concerns that Baltic states have about their security these days. How do you feel about the vitality of NATO? What is your sense about NATO right now as an institution? Well, uh, NATO has probably never been as important today as an as a institution. And it's very important to keep uh, the political unity that we have had in NATO for uh, over the years. It does worry me a little bit uh, what we saw a few weeks ago about uh, there's some polls that show that in some countries, NATO countries, people don't think that we should react to the Article 5. But uh, I think uh, NATO has showed that in uh, recent months that uh, we are able and capable of, of, of uh, addressing issues like, like uh, the threat from Russia today. And the Baltic states, they rely very much on, on the support from NATO. So we have been not shy to, to support them or, or encourage them to, to ask for, for, for help, for support, because uh, mm, even though we might say that, that some NATO countries are, are uh, maybe hesitate to do so, but uh, as we have seen in, 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 in European discussion, we are very, we back up, uh, Iceland backs up of, of Baltic countries very hard. Mm -hmm. And we are very pleased to see the, uh, the, how the US has taken, uh, taken lead in, in uh, answering their, their demands. Uh, Iceland never was able to field a large military. But you made a major contribution to NATO because of your geography. Mm. Is, that a, is that something Iceland still can offer NATO, this geographical location and the way in which it is an ideal platform for the alliance? Iceland is, can definitely contribute. And uh, I think uh, it is as important today as it was 20 years ago that uh, this position of the island in, in between east and, and west. And uh, when it comes to security, defense and security, um, 
it is important that, that uh, in Iceland we have uh, the facilities and equipment to, to address mm. both security threats and, and uh, of course, uh, de de defense threats when, when they can occur. Uh, but we have to focus on, on not only uh, the route between east and west, but also, of course, on the Arctic, and not least uh, the North Atlantic, which, mm. which we tend these days to focus too much, I think, on, on the security uh, in the Arctic. Because uh, south of Iceland, we have all the North Atlantic Ocean, the part of it. And we need to address that also, that there can be, can be uh, uh, security issues mm -hmm. there and, and also defense issues. And uh, we show that today, we see, see it today when, when researchers are uh, you know, showing more interest in, in flying around Iceland or, or, or with their submarines around the island, that the importance uh, is as important today as it was. Uh, the strategic location has not changed, of course, and um, uh, we believe that, that uh, NATO and, and other allies uh, need to take that into account if, if they are, are uh, worrying about the situation as, as it has developed. So Iceland is leaning forward with NATO? Iceland is, is leaning forward with NATO, and, and uh, we have uh, increased our budget uh, for, for defense, budget, uh, budget for uh, for example, um, what, what we have to for, remember, remember that Iceland has always been contributing to uh, you know, the civil uh, part of, of NATO's operations, and we will continue to do so, and also to support NATO headquarters by, by personnel and, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, even though we are, have no military, we, we try to take our responsibility. Mm -hmm. Let me shift to ask uh, a different question. You, in Iceland, about five, six years ago, said it wanted to join the EU. And then I think uh, recently decided that wasn't for Iceland. What happened? Yeah, well. <laughs> Other well, than EU, I mean, I mean <laughs> they have a problem, but what, what happened? Well, uh, the, you know, the government uh, today we have always been very clear that we think uh, uh, Iceland should not join the European Union. The former government started this process, and uh, we think it uh, was not the right thing to do. It was based no, not based on solid ground when it started. So in our mind, it was the uh, obvious thing to do is it was to withdraw or, or terminate this application that was in, in Brussels. But we still uh, see uh, Euro European Union, the European countries, of course, our, uh, one of our you know, uh, biggest allies and, allies, and we have bilateral relations both with the Union and, and the, most of the, of the European countries. Iceland is, of course, a European country. So we are not leaving Europe, even though we are not joining the European Union. But we also see, you know, the, recent, the last years, and we also see just today, that the Union is, is uh, you know, there is some kind of a transformation going on inside mm -hmm. the Union. And for a new country like Iceland that has, um, that, you know, don't needs to join, the needs to join the union, it's better to wait and see. But I can understand some of the countries uh, on the mainland, why they and, uh, you know, politicians in the mainland, uh, they see it a very important uh, need for them to join the union based on economic security and defense security, mm -hmm. being uh, so near to, to uh, to Russia, for, for an example. Um, but just to be honest, I think uh, the Union needs to, you know, take a look inside uh, in Brussels. They look, need to look in the mirror and say, you know, what are we doing? Are we doing everything, everything right? We see that uh, there is sometimes 
lack of, of unity when it comes to taking decisions there. And they need to find ways to make things uh, go through their system must in, in, you know, faster, must faster. It's a too slow uh, bureaucracy system there. Yeah. Um, you're the foreign minister, you're also the trade guy. Uh, you mentioned that you and China, mm -hmm. Iceland and China have entered into a free trade agreement. I can see what, they, what you get out of it. What do they get out of it? What do they, why do they want a free trade agreement with Iceland? Well, it's a 300,000 people's market. No, it's a huge... No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> well, um, there are a lot of, a lot of you know, thoughts or, or uh, you know, people are guessing why, why Iceland and why Switzerland? Switzerland. Switzerland is, of course, bigger than Iceland, but that's not, not no major country. Um, the Chinese seems to be maybe showing that, that they can you know, make such an agreements with uh, Western European countries. And uh, this uh, free trade agreement that we did with China is, is based, basically just you know, as all, all the free trade agreements we have done. Uh, we have an old investment agreement with them since 1994. So there is nothing about investments in this free trade agreement. But we have, we have a, a, a side uh, memo or agreement that where we can can address, uh, you know, like for example, their labor market, human rights, and etc. Uh, we have also a, a, a statements uh, related to this agreement on, on the cooperation in science, science and education and so on. So this is basically a, a very common uh, trade agreement that we have seen done with many other countries based on the, on the, on the EFTA, EFTA uh, agreements. Why Iceland? I mean, as I said, probably they want to show that they are capable of, of doing so. Uh, they have not get. Uh, we are not bending any laws and rules for the Chinese in Iceland. They have to. They have to work with with uh, the laws mm -hmm. and rules that are there. Uh, they are see Iceland, of course, as a member of the Arctic Council, I was going to the Arctic yeah. state, mm -hmm. and their interest in the Arctic is, in my mind, uh, quite obvious. Uh, if you just look at the business business uh, perspective on the Arctic, the possibility of, of, uh, of opening the sailing route, uh, you know, northeast route, or what you call it, um, it is an opportunity for them. Uh, are they going, and, and I don't think we have to worry so much about resources in the Arctic, because most of them are based inside of the economic zones of each country. So uh, the Chinese, you know, People tend to be afraid of them regarding uh, uh, possibilities of natural resources in Arctic, but, but they have nothing to acclaim there because it's, as I said, it's inside the economic zones, most of it, most of it. So uh, I think it's in, in their, you know, uh, favor to take part in this. They have got a lot of scientists, they have a very high level science institutions. They are affected very much from the climate change, of course, we can, we can see that. And uh, having them there is also, and for Iceland especially, is, is important to get the opportunity to take the dialogue about their, their uh, obligation to reduce emissions, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have been uh, taking that uh, discussion and dialogue with them many times. And in fact, uh, uh, today, uh, I think uh, there is an Icelandic, Icelandic US company that runs with, in cooperation with the Chinese company. Mm -hmm. 
the world's largest space heating system based on geothermal, and that is in China. So we have ways to, to address their contribution to pollution uh, and, and uh, the changes in environment, and uh, they are interesting to, to learn from us when it comes to that. That's very interesting. Let me just open up to colleagues here. Yes, ma'am, you are anxious to be asking. Let's, we'll bring up a microphone here. Hi. Uh, my name is Dr. Donna Wells. I'm a mathematician. I make predictive math models. I am a fan of targeted bilateral trade. Um, there's kind of a debate right now in Europe, group-to-group -group trade versus targeted bilateral trade. Can you talk about that dynamic? Thank you. Um, I guess you were referring to, to the TTIP, uh, for example. And Mercosur. And, and Mercosur. Yes. Uh, the EFTA states, we are part of the EFTA states, we are trying to push uh, on, on the Mercosur to, to have a serious dialogue with us about free trade agreement, and it's going, you know, steady and slowly. Uh, we think it's, a, it's better to have groups doing agreements like this than uh, bilateral agreements, because if you have a, you know, a groups of states, a group of countries, it is you know, more effective to have, uh, or efficient to have these uh, agreements on, uh, you know, implemented and, and, you know, between the groups. So we focus on working with EFTA. Uh, we are also looking, of course, at the development in the TTIP discussion between uh, Europe, European Union, and and, uh, and the US, because uh, Europe and US are, are, for us, Iceland example, are the biggest markets for us. So it, it, uh, it uh, does matter for us how the outcome will be of this. But it's better, in my view, my, my view is that better to have groups doing these agreements than, than bilateral. But we know the trouble inside, uh, uh, yeah, the WTO trouble, we know that. It's, it's nothing going on there, in fact, uh, too slowly at least. So that has put uh, the groups together to, to trying to conclude an agreement. Yes, sir, right back here, the fourth, third row, fourth row. Right, yep, his arms up. Um, Brian Beery, Washington correspondent for Europolitics. Another trade question. Um, I'm curious with your free trade agreement with the Chinese, do you have an investor state dispute settlement uh, clause in it? Sorry, investment? The, because in the TTIP, the big debate is whether to include um, an investor state dispute settlement mechanism. Um, do you have one in your agreement with the Chinese? Uh, now I have to think. Yeah, we, have, we have some procedures to deal with, with uh, if there is, uh, if, you're not, if, if, if we do not agree and if there's a problem. I don't remember if it is uh, uh, the same, the same procedures that we have in, other than you were talking about in the TTIP. I, sorry, I, I don't remember it, but, but it definitely is in how we are going to deal with, with uh, uh, problems that are, will, will come with the agreement. Uh, if I remember, uh, there is some, some rather comp complicated procedure that we have to go through. Um, but it, it is, if I remember it right, it has not been, let's say, uh, on the Chinese agenda to, to, to give some, some uh, authorities to a, a third party. To give it away. Yes. <laughs> yes, sir, please, right down here. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent researcher. Uh, to follow a little bit further on this question about the Chinese interests, uh, 
I've read that actually the Chinese embassy is quite a quite a large staff in Iceland. In fact, proportionally speaking, if they had the same proportionate staff to the population of the U.S., you would have 200,000 Chinese diplomats at the embassy here in D.C. So my question is, what what are they all so busy doing up there that they need such a large staff? And secondly, uh, in terms of, of getting a footprint in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, the uh, ch Chinese uh, research stations are sometimes seen uh, more as an attempt to create a presence there as opposed to the research. I know the Australians have been very concerned about this. So uh, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more of that, particularly what, what are they all busy doing up there at the uh, embassy? <laughs> well, they are, you know, they are next to the Polish station, so I'm quite confident that, that we have a good look at them. Well, they, they, have, uh, they have the biggest embassy in Iceland in square meters, at least so far. Uh, I think the United States are moving to a new embassy. I'm not quite sure how big it will be, but they are not, they are not uh, the biggest when it comes to staff. I think both the US and Russia has more staff members than the Chinese in, in Iceland. But this is a, a, it's a myth, I think, they are so big. But the house is, is very, 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 very big. Uh, when it comes to science and, for example, uh, Antarctica and, uh, and the Arctic, uh, I mean, we have, we have been working with them on about very small projects for some time, and uh, they are definitely uh, showing interest, and they are showing the cap capability and capacity to do science. And uh, we, have, um, uh, we have, in fact, uh, these days, I think they are building, in cooperation with uh, Icelanders, a facility in the northern part of Iceland to, to do some research of the northern lights. And uh, mm, so far, it has been going very well. I mean, are they going to research something else than the Northern Lights? I mean, we have to, we have just have to wait and see. And right in the, in the back. You need to turn the mic on. I don't think we can hear it. You have to shove, there's a little button, slide it up. There, you there go. we go. Thank you very much. Oh, much better. Thank My you. name is Carl Alto with the Joint Baltic American National Committee. We represent the Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian American communities. Iceland, of course, your heroes in the Baltics. I was in Vilnius on March the 11th on the 25th anniversary of the restoration of independence uh, with Mr. Hannibalson, also, who's a, who's a hero. Mm -hmm. So thank you for all your support over the years for uh, the, uh, Baltic independence and the restoration of that. Uh, just a question to go back to your cooperation with uh, the Baltic countries, if you could say a few more words about that and maybe about the Nordic cooperation and air policing. Thank you. Well, we have, we have very close cooperation uh, with, uh, with Baltic, Baltic countries. Uh, both has, you know, Iceland has very good bilateral uh, uh, cooperation with them, and, and uh, uh, we have also this, uh, we call it MP8, it's Nordic countries plus the Baltic, Baltic countries. We meet twice or third, uh, three times a year and, and uh, discuss, uh, you know, issues that has to be resolved and, and where we can work more closer together. Uh, on an international level, for example, in the UN and other places, we often work very close with, with the Baltic countries. Uh, inside NATO, we have been, uh, you know, we have been very much understanding. So much, we have shown understanding when, when they are, are uh, De delivering their speeches on, on how important it is to have uh, a more presence from NATO in their countries. We, we can really understand that. But at the same time, uh, we have to 
you know, we cannot overdo also because uh, we, we don't want to be those who, who trigger some, some conflicts. It's, it's, that is the other side of, of the coin. Um, but cooperation with the Baltic countries is, is not only historical between Iceland and them, but also it is very important. Um, we have Baltic countries plus Poland, for example. We have a lot of people from these countries in, in living in Iceland. Mm. So it's very near to us mm. that, that mm. we need to have a close, close cooperation with them. Uh, we are very proud of, of the history when it comes to, to these countries. And we will definitely support them as much as we can to remain free and independent. We're right down here in the second row. Yes. Bob Goldstein from Army uh, Headquarters. So my question uh, has to do with the uh, Iceland Defense Force. Uh, that was disestablished back in uh, 2006. With the uh, increase of uh, aggressive actions by the uh, Russians to include uh, building up of uh, bases in the high north as well as uh, activity in the uh, Baltic, uh, North Sea, and the Atlantic, uh, and the, uh, and the uh, Arctic Sea, do you see a need for uh, the reestablishment of the uh, Iceland Defense Force either under U.S. or, uh, or NATO? Um, it's difficult to say, to answer a question that when you say, do you see a need for? But we have to address the, the change in the security environment, which we see you know, developing in a wrong direction today because of the behavior of, of Russia and also, of course, be the uh, of the threat from South, ISIS and those uh, terrorist groups. Um, I will not be surprised if uh, in the next years Iceland will become more important and more, uh, uh, and the strategic importance will be on the table again. Uh, is a need today to, to in, increase uh, 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 presence in, in, in Cape Lake? I would say, I would, you know, just to be honest, I would say that they would be in favor of, of NATO and in favor of, of you know, the all of the North Atlantic Coalition to have uh, at, uh, the capability at least to respond very quickly uh, in, 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 from Keplerk and in Keplerk. Uh, I cannot say um, how and, and when and what equipment and what kind of, uh, of uh, presence is, is, is good to have there, but it's definitely something that we need to address in, in, uh, in the next months and maybe years. We have been um, focusing on, on the Kepler Air Base as a, a place for a search and rescue hub. Uh, is it a, you know, or maybe on a NATO level or uh, some, some other level, US, Denmark, UK, and others maybe? Uh, if you look again at, at the position of the island uh, in the world map, it's a place that is very well situated regarding search and rescue in the Arctic and also when it comes to the North Atlantic. Maybe there can be uh, some kind of, uh, of a link between certain rescue hub and some more presence in, in Keplek, but that is something that, that we need to, need to see how we'll, we'll develop. But the signs that we are seeing from Europe and the south part of, of Europe, uh, uh, or the Middle East, sorry, it's not very encouraging in the way to more safety and peace. So I think I cannot answer this question uh, more in a direct way than this. 
maybe if, the, if Scotland secedes and kicks out the Royal Navy's nuclear forces, you can take them. Yeah, well, <laughs> well just an no, idea. I, I don't I, that's know. That's something I can to... tell you. We will, we will not have nuclear weapons in Iceland. Never. <laughs> okay. Right down here. Uh, Peter Sun with Capital Intel. I just came from Iceland. I was in a very busy and you know, moving place with Hafsos in northern Iceland. Hafsos, Hafsos, mm -hmm. and then Hafsos. I, I mean, the question is, it sort of adds on to this. I mean, you're unique in a NATO member without any military, no army, no boots on the ground. You have Coast Guard already, I think, in Tunisia, Libya, on the coast, helping you know forces down there in Italy. Mm -hmm. How does Iceland use this fact that you don't have a military to take a special role in NATO talks? Because I gather when there's no leadership, it's each individual country has its say in the NATO you know talks and bilaterals, et cetera. Well, we have we have a. Uh, uh you know, maybe have a very important role to play when, when it comes to NATO missions, for example, because we have contributed both in uh, capacity building and also we have taken taking roles when it comes to headquarters. We have, have uh, a seconding uh, a personnel, and at one time we had, I think, 36 people, for example, in Afghanistan, uh, you know, running the airport, policing, and, and so on. So our uh, role in, 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 you know, as a NATO member uh, it's important because even though we are a very small country with no army, we have something to deliver, and we can deliver, uh, uh, you know, as I say, personal, and we can also deliver when it comes to rebuilding uh, societies and, and, and so on. Um, we have been increasing uh, the, the funds when it comes to to, to Icelandic duties and, in, inside uh, the NATO alliance. Um, and one of one of the most important contributions from us is to uh, to having the Kepler Air Base up and running. It is you know as it's almost plug and play. If you need to to uh, place the, uh, an airplane there or, or uh, uh, planes for search for submarines, for example, we can do it in a few hours. It's, everything is ready there. And we have had a couple of, couple of hundred of people uh, in in the air base uh, not so long ago uh, for. Exactly for, exactly for that, searching for submarines. <laughs> and when we have uh, air policing shifts in Iceland, it has been working extremely well. So there is a, a, a good example of where we, where we contribute. Let me take one last question. Yeah, well, right back there, and then we're going to have to wrap it up. The foreign minister's got to get to the airport. He's, he's got work to do. Well, Konstantinos Kanalopoulos from Johns Hopkins SAIS. Uh, acknowledging the recent announcement by your finance minister, to lift the capital controls in place in Iceland for the past eight years. What does Iceland's experience have to teach Greece with regards to capital controls, your experience recovering from the crisis, imposing justice in a society where fishermen turned into bankers? Thank you. This is a, a, a quite a large question. Uh, well, to, be, to begin with, uh, you know, if you look at the situation in Iceland, uh, well, actually, Mr. Ambassador Gerhardt should be answering the question because he was the prime minister when everything went over in Iceland. And he was the one who, who put forward a, a, a proposal, law proposal to the parliament that probably has saved the island for being to, to default. But you know, the difference between Iceland and Greek for, Greece, for example, is that our debts, you know, they were not state debts. They were a private stats. Um, <coughs> The capital, cons the capital controls was very important. If not, you know, all of the of, of these states, uh, states would have 
and uh, have uh, you know got out of the out of the country and we have left in default properly or bankrupt in very few months because there are no currency for it. Uh, it is not good to have capital controls, but we have even though we have seen interest, for example, from investors in in, in a long-term investments in Iceland, even though we had the capital controls. But when it comes to short-term investment, it has been a you know blackout if I, if I can say so. Uh, we have managed to to recover because. We did not take over the debts of the private banks. We had our own small currency. Uh, we were rich of natural resources. Our export sectors has been uh, uh, blooming, if I can say so, because of course of the devaluation of, 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 of the currency. And the tourism industry has been booming. So everything uh, has been going in the right, right direction. And based on, on, on the decision, those decisions that was taken in 2008, by this, uh, to propose this emergency law that Mr. Gerhardt did, is I think the ground that, that we have been standing on in, in, in the recovering uh, way. Uh, we still need some years to fully recover, and we still have, have huge debts of, on, the, on the state af afterwards. But uh, I would say that in, in uh, four, five years, we will be in, on a very, very good place. Because if we, if we managed to, to have those deals with the creditors in Iceland, we probably will be our, uh, the debts of the state will probably be near to 25% of GDP in 2019. It is today somewhere between 50-75%. Mm. So if this everything, if everything going in, in, in our way, we are in a very good place in, in not so long time. I think we want to say thank you, uh, Foreign Minister. You've been candid. You've been very open. You've given us very interesting and fresh responses, and all of us are grateful for it. Would you please, with your applause, say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.